So in the early days of Hoppin, we never said no. We just, we built the feature that Wall Street Journal needed, that TechCrunch Disrupt needed, you know, that the Atlantic needed. And we didn't say, no, we don't, sorry, we don't have that. We said, yep, we'll have it well before your event. You determine what you build based on the logo you can bring in that you then can put on your website and you have a case study and then you have word of mouth and like FOMO coming from like their peers. When you get that big logo coming in, build features for logos. Welcome to Entrepreneur's Handbook Podcast. I'm your host, Amadeep, and today I'm interviewing our founder and the previous host of this podcast, Dave Schools. We chat about how he went from being a multi-project entrepreneur to being part of the founding team and the head of marketing at $8 billion startup, Hopin. It's been a wild ride with hockey stick growth and is now managing different special projects within the company. He has an incredible story and I'm proud to work with him. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So for this episode, me and Dave have swapped seats. Dave is the founder of Entrepreneur's Handbook and I've been the editor for the last year or so. So welcome, Dave. It's great to have you on board. Thanks, Amar. Great, great to be here. Excited to chat. Yeah. So what I'd love to get is I wasn't there for the beginning of Entrepreneur's Handbook. I've only seen the last year and a half. How was it right at the very start of this journey? So I first heard about Ev Williams after college when I studied entrepreneurship and kind of got into the space then. And Ev Williams was someone that I really looked up to as the founder of Start of, of Twitter and launching Blogger. And just kind of following his career, he, he was like the writer, philosopher meets entrepreneur founder, like tech founder, and brought those two personas together. So watching him leave Twitter and then start this new project called Medium, I was, I was watching and, and waiting for when Medium opened its doors up for the first time ever. And Medium was founded in 2012 and opened its doors publicly for anyone to write in 2015. And I was... I was ready and waiting when they issued that uh, that opening. So I started writing on Medium in 2015, and they initially launched with what they called collections, which we now know as publications, as just a way to organize your writing, like to put it in a place, you know, for for folks to peruse a collection around a topic. So I started. I, I kind of open openly wrote about my entrepreneurial adventures. You know, like the the early failed startups and projects that that end up winding down uh, that we all have. But so I'd write about lessons learned uh, from those and publish them in a collection that I called Entrepreneur's Handbook. And it started. It was early. You know, it was, it was one of the first publications. Uh, but it has since it's since grown. Yeah, and that's a bit of an understatement now because it's got, I think, two hundred and ten thousand followers. The last I checked. I think so. Yeah. Right at that beginning stage. So. What were some of your early startups that you were writing about? So people know you now for hopping, but you've got a long history that goes way beyond that. Sure, yeah. I remember one of them was uh, Ephographic. It was called Ephographic.com. Uh, and it was, I borrowed, or rather my grandfather invested $5,000 in me to launch Ephographic uh, in my early 20s. And it, the concept and even just redescribing it is, is shows the holes in it. But it was basically a way to screenshot or snapshot your newsletters, email newsletters, such that they looked and felt like an infographic. 
And then it allowed you to, to make your infographic fit into a social media box, you know, parameters so that you could see the full infographic. So it's kind of like email newsletter to infographic, then infographic resizer to see everything on a, in a social media post. And it was a tool that did that. So we, I launched it on Product Hunt and got a few thousand users. And the, the business model was folks would buy credits to use it. And it made zero money until two years later when I had fully abandoned it, but kept it open. Somebody bought $8 worth of credits on Ephographic to change, to change his UFO newsletter into something he could post on social media. And I just remember like him reaching out on Facebook Messenger and I had to reply and be like, I'm sorry, like this is not live anymore. I'll refund your money. And then I shut it down shortly after that. Yeah, but I guess that's funny, right? Because sometimes that happens, doesn't it? Where you forget about something and a long time later, somebody finds a use for it. So maybe if you didn't abandon that, it could have continued to grow. Who knows? I should have leaned into the conspiracy theory niche of newsletters. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it was, I guess that like, so I published an article, uh, five lessons learned from, um, I forget the exact title, learned from that experience. And a lot of them was, you know, begin with a specific customer pain point, you know, and build a product that solves a real problem for them. And I did start with, with a personal pain point. I was a director of marketing at a commercial real estate company. And that was something I thought would solve the problem. But there was a little bit too much of a motivation to launch a startup versus solve a problem, you know, accurately for, for real people. And it never like the mom test, you know, like, hey, mom, what do you think? Is this going to work? And mom's always because I'm so proud of you. Like, this is great. You know, go for it. Versus getting like cold, hard feedback from, you know, folks who, do, who aren't your friends or family. Yeah. And looking at that as well, when that launched, you were in your early 20s, right? And I think that's quite a common thing for people who have decided they want to be an entrepreneur or want to be in the startup world, but aren't quite sure what their idea is yet. And they can sometimes rush into it. But like you said, that's how you learn some of these lessons. And it took you to where you later on went to. So there, there were other apps after that as well, right? I think Party Cues is the one that comes to mind. Yeah, so Party Cues was a mobile app that I launched with a co-founder after Ephographic. And one of the things that I learned from Ephographic that informed the launch of Party Cues was that, and I, I found this quote from an, it's one of the, my most favorite quotes, and I found it from an anonymous Reddit user. Uh, it's that you learn more in three days of taking action than in six months of researching. So taking that mentality to just MVP, push out, get market validation, and talk to real, real customers and users was something that we applied to Party Cues. And Party Cues came from, uh, initially, we started with an app called Brew. And it's actually, if you look back into the history of Entrepreneur's Handbook, you'll see Business Brewers, my email, you know, is businessbrewers.com. We had Brew Projects. And it was kind of like, oh, let's launch a community of entrepreneurs and founders, like a social network for us to share ideas. So there's a membership that I launched around that. Ended up pulling the plug on that for a number of reasons. One was scaling issues. So it was kind of like, okay, we got some product market fit, you know, and some traction, but then the business model was flawed and it wasn't scalable. So pulling the, the plug on that, then there was this, okay, party cues, simple, 
questions app that we launch in both stores. And it's literally just swiping through high quality icebreaker questions, conversation starters for folks that are categorized in like date night, deep uh, party questions. So we push that out and uh, it's the simplest app you'll ever use. But yeah, it's uh, that has is still live and go. We have 12,000 monthly active users. It's monetized. And it's just my uh, co-founder and I, and we kind of operate it quite passively. But yeah, if you Google questions app, you find party cues. I hear comments all the time. People love it. It helps people grow closer to one another. It's great for, for couples and road trips, campfires, hikes, you know, and it's especially spiked as one of those companies that spiked similar to Hoppin and others during the pandemic when people stayed home and needed uh, something to chat about. Funniest thing uh, is that the most popular day of the year is New Year's Eve. People staying up till midnight. So they're like, what do we talk about? They search conversation starters or questions app and they find party cues. Yeah. And how does the monetization work for the app? Because it's not something which immediately comes to mind of how you'd do that side of things. Yeah. In-app purchases. People download the app. It's free. And then to unlock kind of premium category packs uh, like Enneagram, for example, or Love Languages. Those are popular ones. They pay a dollar. And then we launched Unlock All. So you unlock all of them and then you save two bucks and that's a $10 purchase. Nice. I also like um, the quote from the anonymous Reddit user. And I feel that sometimes the best quotes are those anonymous ones. So party cues, was that ever, I guess, your full-time like role or something which you spend most of your time on or it's always something you're building on the side always something on the side uh both my co-founder and i had full-time jobs and actually in 2017 due to largely entrepreneur's handbook gaining traction and and really starting to grow as as well as medium in general i quit my job to become a kind of like a multi-project entrepreneur i traveled the country with my my wife uh she was a travel nurse and we, we bopped around at different cities three months at a time. And I would just, I'd write, I'd do marketing consulting for tech startups. I launched a book and then Party Cues and Entrepreneur's Handbook. So a bunch, bunch of different projects that I had on my plate, all with like a meaningful level of traction, but I was able to, you know, make a pretty decent living on my own. Nice. How long did you do that nomadic lifestyle for? 18 months start. We started in, out of DC, went into Phoenix, then Salt Lake city, then the Bay area, San Mateo, and then came back East to uh, Salisbury, Maryland, and then Richmond. And then now that's where we bought a house and put roots down. And now I have two, two daughters. What made you pick Richmond as an entrepreneur, as a place to base yourself? Yeah, it's, it checked all the boxes, um, both on a personal and professional level. It's kind of like What's a big city, East Coast, that's not uh, New York or D.C. or has, you know, isn't necessarily, you know, very attractive of a city like Baltimore or Philadelphia? Because I'm from New York. My family's there and wife's family's in Maryland. So, how do, like, how do we stay close? But also we want to be warmer. So, go a little, little more south. Still have that big city vibe, but not the traffic problems. And then a little bit, you know, a burgeoning startup scene. And Richmond was that place. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting as well is that you're based in Richmond. And then when you started at Hopin, Johnny is obviously based in London. And I think 
even that early team were all based all over the world, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Johnny was in London, I was in Richmond, and now we're in what, 48 different countries? As a as a dis- fully distribu- distributed remote first company, we've never never had an office. Although there's kind of like meetups and hangout, hop and hangouts we call them in cities across the world. And we have like a hop Instagram Slack channel where you can see, you know, team photos of ad hoc get-togethers, and so it's it's a lot of fun. At that early stage, so when you were fully remote and working with Johnny on Hopin, it was before the pandemic, right? So it wasn't quite the common thing that it is now. Did you have any apprehensions about going into that world? Or was it something which you were really looking forward to about having that remote lifestyle? It was something that I was a big fan of having worked in offices prior at other jobs. See, one of the things with remote work is that it's very, I use the word clean in the sense that like when you get on a video call, it's you're there for work. Like you're there with a purpose and it's like, you can chit chat and like get to know each other and have fun doing it, but it's in the back of everyone's head. We're all here to accomplish something. And that's very efficient as opposed to at an office, you know, there's those in between, you know, maybe it's after work or like you're getting lunch together. And it's like, are we working or are we friends or, you know, like, and that, that was that gray kind of area was uh, something I'd, I'd picked up on. So the, the remote work, A, the convenience and just being able to be home, you know, like while I'm starting a family, but then B, that like very intentional side of it, I was a big fan of. So yeah, Johnny and I met fully remotely. We would get on long, long conversations, just like built a friendship. So how did you guys actually meet considering you're from Richmond and he's from London? Where did your paths cross? Yeah. So uh, we were talking about party cues and entrepreneur's handbook. And so there's it's kind of a convergence of the multi-projects that led to one. And it, it uh, came from an interview I did with the founder of Online Geniuses, which is one of the largest online groups of marketers. And David Markovich was the founder. And so I interviewed him on how to, how do you start like a large online community? Like what's, what are the keys to success there? And wrote an article, jumped on the, the, the call with him, had a great conversation. And then at the end, he asked like, hey, Dave, you're, you're different. Like you're, you're not like a normal journalist or, or you know, interviewer. And uh, how do I help you? David Markovich is out of New York City, very uh, connected guy. So I started talking about party cues. That's a conversation starter app, helps uh, solve the problem of awkward silences and, you know, helps with networking, connecting people. And so he's, as I'm talking, he's firing off emails, like four or five different emails to his folks in his network. Just one liner, like, hey, this is Dave, he's working on party cues. You, you might be interested in chatting with him. Uh, one of those was to Johnny Booferhat and, uh, Johnny responded and said, Dave, would love to would love to get in touch and have a have a chat. That was December 2018. And we started talking uh, January, February 2019, right as my uh, first daughter was was born. So, yeah, then we he, we would kind of check in every couple of weeks on like Johnny's progress as a kind of like indie hacker developer working on Hoppin. And I was working on my, my the different projects, but I was so fascinated on what what he was building and I was blown away by how fast he could build it. So we'd have a conversation and he'd show me like he'd immediately screen share and like show like the feature he just built. Then I'd give him some feedback. He'd return like the following weekend and it'd be there. Like the the thing that was missing was there was now built. So one thing led to the next is I ended up running one of the first ever Hopin events 
on with Entrepreneur's Handbook's community. That's when my eyes were opened to the future of events with, with Haven. How did the process go of you actually coming on board? Was it something which took a long time? Johnny would ask me periodically, like, what are you looking to do next? Like, what's your next you know, career move? And I would tell him that I'm waiting for that one opportunity to jump in with two feet and like quit all my stuff and jump into something fully focused. After running that event and seeing the, the high level of interactivity, the connection, the feedback, the, how it, it solved the problem of a remote community coming together and being engaged uh, at one time and the energy that came from that, um, my eyes were opened. And then that's where I started talking more and more frequent, frequently with Johnny. And then in September, 2019, quit all my stuff and uh, joined Johnny full time. What were the early days like at Hopin? So I think back then it had two eyes. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And if you look at our, our uh, Slack, it it's still the original Slack, you know, workspace that we that we used in the beginning so it's it's uh, it has two eyes in it and it's not a, not a typo that was the early name of the the company and, and that was one of the decisions with uh early on was do we get the domain name hoppin with two eyes.com or do hoppin.2 and we ended up going with hoppin.2 because what followed would be the event url and so it's hoppin2 the name of your event and that had a nice ring to it that was the rationale before we got hoppin.com yeah, so one thing at a much smaller scale. So with my domain name at the moment is that I have, it's my full name because you might not know this, but there's about a million Amadeeps in the world. It's a very common name in India. So pretty much every different combination has been taken. And the actual just Amadeep.com website is taken, but it's not being used. And then I tried to get it. And the price that was quoted was just incredible. I couldn't believe it. So. I'm sticking to my dodgy domain name at the moment. Was that almost like a big stepping stone in a way or like a nice milestone when you got that hopping.com where it's like, this is serious now. Not that it wasn't serious before, but it was like seeing that and logging into hopping.com just has that extra feeling. Yeah, totally. It's it's getting a .com versus like a .io or .co, you know, a, a different TLD you know, from a marketing perspective, it just, it provides that social proof or like that psychological grounding, you know, when you're using a tool that a .com I think does uniquely, it shows legitimacy, you know, so that's valuable for an, or for a startup, especially when it's, when it's unproven. So yeah, there was a bit of a, a proving moment, you know, when we switched to hopin.com, which is exciting. But yeah, when I joined Johnny, I focused primarily on GTM, all of the go-to-market functions with you know, customer success, sales, support, marketing. One of my projects, like the, one of the first things that I did was reach out to the owner of Hopin.com. And it was a thriving tourism business in Athens, Greece, and a 56-year-old business, like been around for decades. A lot of local brand equity in, in Hopin sightseeing. And he ignored my emails, you know, like it was like it was spam. It was a joke. And over time, we... we stepped up the amounts of our offer and then he engaged you know to and responded to one email and then one thing like leads to the next is just phone call after phone call emails lawyers you know transitions escrow you know the whole process it can and it came all the way down to the wire where we were going to announce uh to Hopin team internally like hey we bought the domain name and it was like literally hours before that all hands 
when the deal was was finally closed, John is like running to the post office to do wet signatures because that's a requirement in Greece. It was just it was crazy. But we eventually, yeah, secured that name. And now I believe Hop and Sightseeing is under the local domain name with hopin.gr for Greece. In those early days, I remember I've seen your calendar of those early days where you had, I think it was almost like 20, 30 meetings a day. How did you cope with all of that? And how did that help helping get to where it's um, got to? Yeah, it was insane in the early days of Hopin. But leading up to it, it was, it was when the pandemic hit, that's when it was gas on the fire and really started to get packed out like that for everyone. Um, but leading up to it in 2019, we'd had our, uh, we'd, we shipped a beta product to an early community of users and received just wonderful feedback and kind of honed the product market fit of Hopin as a virtual events platform at the time. Uh, one of the things we positioned clearly at the beginning was that we uh, weren't a webinar platform just to show the distinction based on the market understanding of what a virtual event was because virtual events equaled webinars essentially and webinars were a one-way passive consuming kind of experience instead of a human interactive you know networking live dynamic uh space like a venue so we were kind of that's how we chose our, our position at the beginning, ended up shipping out and got some early traction. And then I closed Dell, our first enterprise customer in January, 2020. And this is still pre-pandemic as well, isn't it? Right. And that came, that, that came from TechCrunch Disrupt, just walking the expo floor, the startup alleyway with my laptop open and going into different booths and being like, hey, check out this. Like you could have a virtual booth as well. You know, like you have, you're doing this uh, here locally. What if you could reach the world with the same message and just amplify your reach? And here's how it works. And so I'd give a demo. So that, so I did that with uh, Dell. They ended up closing. They closed January. So then in February is when the pandemic really started to set in. That was when our, our the inbound, you know, for, of people just kind of looking for what's a virtual event platform you know, that we can pivot to semi-urgently. And so Hopin was fortunately kind of at the top of the list as the, the, the platform that combined all the features to recreate an event experience that would have been in person online, most similarly. Yeah, that people were knocking down our door trying to get access to the platform. And when that first happened, when the pandemic struck, I, get, well, I remember at the time, we thought it would just be a month, it would be a few weeks. We never imagined it would be how long this become. Did you guys have a kind of inkling that this could be a thing that would set up the company off on the path it did? Or did you think this might be a short-term boost? Yeah, I remember Johnny answers this question in, a, in, a, in an accurate way where he says that the pandemic accelerated what we already knew to be true. I think what happened launched pre-pandemic in a world where there was no coronavirus. And we already started to see that that viral coefficient take place and the, the rapid adoption product market fit was was settling in. So when the pandemic hit, it kind of just accelerated and our scaling into hyperscaling. And that was, you know, the future of work, like more companies going remote, the accessibility to talent, you know, across the world 
uh, the flexibility of work, impact over hours, the affordability of remote work over, you know, office spaces. So just all the benefits of being able to meet anyone anywhere in the world and grow your network, you know, make sales and, you know, name, name the function. If you did it in person at an event, you could do it online at an event on Hopin. And so the pandemic kind of just, yeah, it grew, grew Hopin a lot faster than we initially expected. Yeah. And how did that work internally when, say, you were head of marketing and you needed to recruit more people? How was that kind of process? Because I imagine it's very difficult when you're trying to do the same many inbound requests. So how do you find the time to then hire people to then help you with that and get them trained up? How did you go through that process? And do you have any tips for people listening? Yeah, totally a paradox or, or a, a rock and a hard place, I'd say, for startup founders and, and early team members when you're trying to grow your team while being pounded from the market, like people trying to get access to the product and, you know, from feature requests to, you know, support and success and marketing and just needing to not work in the business, but work on the business. And so that's where like that tension is really felt when you're hyperscaling. So Johnny said something that was very effective. He implemented kind of when you get hired at Hop and turn around and hire three of the best people you've worked with in the past and bring them to Hopin. And that was one one kind of not a not shortcut, but a strategy that I'd say served us really well in being able to hire like 50 people a week for months at a time, just keeping that that going. And that's that's where Hopin speed, you know, we became known for for growing that fast in large part to that to that strategy. As the company grew. And I read this in Oscarville recently, because you were right there at the beginning, your employee number, uh, one of the very first people, how does it feel to now have been in that small team that was with Johnny and a few other people? So then now be in such a huge organization. And it's, it's strange because for most people, this would happen over a decade or over two decades. Whereas for you, it happened in almost a year, two years. You went from that small, tight-knit group to the Goliath that is now. For sure. I would, I'd recommend the book, The High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, uh, because he addresses and actually coined that term early employee syndrome. And he, he kind of talks about the book is about how do you grow from 10 employees to 10,000? And he maps out the different paths and interviews a lot of folks who were early at companies, including Uber, Twitter, um, Facebook, Airbnb and some others. And reading that book really kind of put words to, I guess, you know, how, do, how does it feel for when, when a company goes through hyperscale like that? And yeah, a lot, of, a lot of folks are disenfranchised by how different the company feels to work at. You know, like we, we, we joked at Hopin that it feels like a different company every three months. It's like a totally new job with how many cha- things changed internally. But for me, it was super exciting. One of the best experiences, if not the best professional experience I've ever had in the sense that the ability to learn from the people who came in over top of me, underneath me, alongside of me, in all directions, like to be able to learn from folks who had been at Salesforce, who'd been at, you know, HubSpot and Dropbox, you know, like these other great SaaS companies to come in and for them to 
you know, apply their specialty, their specialization. Cause as a company grows, it becomes, you know, you be, roles become a little more defined and specialist where in the early days it's multiple hats, generalists thrive. And so that that specialization and verticalization of a company can go wrong. And there's, you know, culture changes and it's, it's not always a, a pleasant experience, but I'd say at, at Hoppin, from my perspective, I can genuinely say I, re- I I wake up in the morning excited about the work that I get to do, and I sign off looking forward to the next day. Some of the things that uh, have stayed from the beginning, as far as like culture, like how to build culture through hy- hyperscaling, one that sticks out is no ego, just having no ego and not being like precious about your ideas, or you know like getting personal about the work you're doing, have strong opinions, but hold them loosely, you know, and feedback, like be open to feedback and being wrong. It's okay to be wrong because a lot of what marketing especially is in the beginning is experimentation and testing. So that means iteration and and lots of, lots of changes happen. So that sort of adaptability I'd say is, is something I'd, I'd recommend for folks who join a startup, you know, like the founding team of a startup is get ready to adapt. And and it's kind of worthless on a tactical level, worthless to make a, a plan over six months away because it's it will be changed. You know, like it whether it's funding or acquisitions or, you know, the team growing or customers, the markets expanding, like so many things can change. And if if you struggle with change or adaptability, then I don't know if I'd recommend being early at a, at a startup, but now we're at uh, over a thousand employees. Like I said, totally different company to work at, but just as fulfilling with the challenges that I get to learn and uh, the work I get to do. It's, it's been like a triple MBA, you know, kind of lesson all like, crammed into two and a half years. So I'm extremely thankful. I remember there's a, I think it's the founder of Monza in the UK. So it's a fintech company. And so after it grew to a unicorn, he then left because what he found is that he really liked that scrappy side of things right at the beginning. And he didn't like being in charge of such a huge company. And it's like we said, it's about the adaptability because it's almost if you have the idea of you want to be scrappy, then what happens when you're actually successful? What happens when it does well? Because as you said, things change. So you do need to be prepared for success as well in a way. Is there anything that if you could go back to, I guess, two years ago now, that you could tell yourself to prepare yourself better for how the journey went? What lesson would you tell yourself as like um, Dave two years ago? Rub shoulders with who you want to be six months from now. Like find a person who is in your shoes, but just six months down the road or a year down the road and get get kind of specific on what they worked on. Like what were their goals? Who were the team members that they surrounded themselves with? Like for early hires. One thing I'm grateful for is Armando Mann is the chief business officer of Hoppin. And he came in early 2020, I think it was April or May. But one of the things that he did amongst so many things was with me, he he would have us sit down with other CMOs of companies and kind of just ask them about, you know, their recommendations, their playbooks, their early hires, you know, if they were in our shoes, what would they do? You know, with Hoppin being kind of unique in how fast it was going and, and, and it not really being something that has been done before. I think that's the case with, with every company. Every company is, 
is doing a lot of the same things, but in their own way with new customers, new product, new team. It's all different, but some of the the, the lessons and the motions look the same, but you're kind of relearning it every time. But getting as much exposure to folks who've been around the block, you know, a few times was, uh, was something I wish I had done sooner. Johnny, for example, you know, started as an indie hacker, but then is now, you know, CEO of a close to $8 billion valuation company in three years, you know, and so someone who scales from where he was to where he is now, like is mind blowing. And one of the thing keys to success that allowed him to do that from my perspective was his ability to listen and not be the smartest person in the room and challenge, like listen and challenge information that he was, he was received. And so he did a good job of pursuing investors who had seen kind of meteoric growth before and really spend, uh, spend time with them and receive kind of like their wisdom, their experience, their recommendations, but then challenge it and make it his own for Hoppin. And so I think he, that kind of like rapid growth learning uh, was, was a difference maker for Johnny. You mentioned there, but it was what about people who came like underneath you or people who came in at lower levels of the company but you learned from them too. Do you have any examples of any lessons that where somebody came in who was relatively new, but then came out of an idea that then led to quite a massive change within the company? So Hopin has bought five companies since the beginning. And each time there's an influx of new talent, new ideas, new perspectives and customers and, and markets. And when StreamYard was one that we bought uh and it's public you can look up the number we bought them for 250 million beginning of 2020 is when we made that announcement the reason why i know that is i was running comms at the time so i remember <laughs> making the announcement and so gage and dan are the co-founders over there and they just their approach uh to to building you know a 30 million dollar a year business like on their own because that streamyard was one of the businesses that was you know small team pandemic hit and just scaled incredibly fast. So they had their own kind of perspectives on that. The simplicity of the product or kind of product-led growth is the term, but StreamYard modeled PLG in such a clean way that we are now emulating across the the rest of the the company at other business units. So their approach of of kind of uh, product is the best way to market your business was was an idea that that really caught on with uh, let's focus on the growth loops and the network effect of our products and just grease that machine um, and they do it super well at StreamYard. Yeah. What are you working at the moment at Hopin that excites you? I'm uh so I'm in I'm working on a stealth project at Hopin and I can't say too much on it, but but I can say that you know I was at the beginning with launching Hopin Core. And then when we when we acquired StreamYard, I went over to the StreamYard team and helped stand up StreamYard Business, our first B2B sales-led uh, plan, you know, with an annual plan versus self, self-serve. So kind of adding that in uh, to StreamYard. And now I'm moving over to another business unit that we have at Hopin to help bring another product to market uh, next year. So it's, it's like I'm allowed to, and this is one thing that's great about Hopin, I'm allowed the flexibility to work on where my skill set is best fit 
with being kind of an early stage entrepreneur, entrepreneur type of a GTM player. So being able to move around and bring these products to market has been really great. Yeah. What do you think are some of the lessons that you took from launching original Hopin, core Hopin, that you took to the StreamYard business side? And what are some things you did differently with that launch? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. How you formulate the offering and position it in the marketing, you is a, there's a certain amount of guesswork that goes into that. And at Hopin, you know, we've moved so fast. We don't have decades of data to make decisions off of. And that's been something that we're, we're working on actively now is improving our data systems for that kind of decision-making uh, capability. But in the meantime, and in a fast-moving early-stage startup, you don't have the data to, make, to have a clear right answer. And so what you, you just have to push out. You have to put it in front of real customers and get feedback and validation and then that's how you start developing your pricing plans and your ICP, you know. And so one thing I'll, I'll give a specific example of a strategy that I'm seeing used three times in a row at Hopin. I'd recommend anyone who's launching a product to, to, to follow this product roadmap can be like, how do you determine the features you build for your product? There's different opinions and this might be, you know, controversial, but it's just the way I've seen build, you know, your core product to solve the problem. As you get users coming in and they become customers, especially, you know, your highest paying ones or, you know, ones that you want to replicate the deal of, that's where you ask them, have a close relationship with those customers and ask them, like, what would we, what could we build that would help you achieve your goals? Or if it's a prospect who says, if you build this feature, I will sign the, the contract. So in the early days of Hopin, we never said no. We just, we built the feature that Wall Street Journal needed, that TechCrunch Disrupt needed, you know, that the Atlantic needed. And we didn't say, no, we don't, sorry, we don't have that. We said, yep, we'll have it uh, well before your event. Uh, and so that's kind of, so the, the takeaway, I guess, is that, and this is the same with Streamer Business, is that you determine what you build based on the logo you can bring in that you then can put on your website and you have a case study and then you have word of mouth and like FOMO coming from like their peers when you get that big logo coming in. So that's, that's like one kind of practical takeaway for how to, how to scale a startup is build features for logos to come in the door and then partner with them to do customer marketing. Yeah. And I think you've called this roadmap marketing before, right? Roadmap marketing. Yeah. 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 And so that that's happening with your stealth project as well. Can we know when that's launching or is that under wraps as well? That's uh, under wraps as well. So it's kind of a, an interesting challenge with how do you build a stealth product without, you know, with real customer feedback uh, without letting the, the cat out of the bag, you know, um, that's something that we're kind of figuring out right now. And there's, you know, user research and there's, you know, we haven't gotten into NDAs, but like a beta community, you know, where you partner with your early users and, you know, so it's more of a partnership instead of like a customer, like I paid for this, you have to give me this or else I'm going to, you know, write a bad review. It's more like come in, come into the community with us, help us build the product for you. Uh, and then that's how you get your ICP. We'll, we'll start to bundle, you know, with other, the Hopin suite. So it's, it's a challenge, but you, you let folks in through an early access sort of wait list beta community that's the approach that we kind of did at Hopin in the beginning, and, and that's happening 
again uh, with our other products. Yeah. So where do you see Hopping in the next few years heading? So you build, you're building new products, you're bundling them together. Now, you could, for example, I was going to say, where do you see Hopping in five years? But Hopping hasn't even been around for five years yet. It's all, right? So I guess you could be anywhere. But is there anywhere that you think Hopping could head in that you're particularly excited by? So Hopin's going to be rolling out additional products. There'll be some some significant announcements. Again, I can't can't kind of say what they what they are, but there's a a lot that's coming down the pipe. You know, Hopin has a just a two year track record roughly, but there's been significant announcements. Those are likely going to continue, and as Hopin builds out and matures and heads toward you know an exit, the end result that we're going for is for Hopin to be inextricable from the tech stack that we use on a day-to-day basis. Um, So how we achieve that is kind of what's being planned out currently and uh, some exciting stuff is coming down the pipe. And for your own personal goals, you've achieved so much already through Hopin. Have you got other targets you've set yourself and how are you looking to achieve those? Yeah, one of the things... One of the things that I had to grow through kind of personally was as Hoppin grew and became much larger than I ever like had the experience for and folks I'm being hired over uh, and it becomes more of kind of a, a larger organization, you know, kind of like a corporation. I've had to personally go through a number of transformations and where I'm at now is is currently not really being precious about title or even influence in the company. I'm done with the like corporate ladder, you know, and, and I want to just do the most impactful work. I want to go where my skills and experience and the history with the company can be most impactful, like effective in growing the company, you know, hitting like generating bottom line results, uh, empowering other teams and learning. I'm, I'm still learning a ton and uh, it's it's no longer you know about the corporate ladder for me anymore. It's just about uh, learning and impact and and the people I work with every day and enjoying enjoying the work uh, as I'm getting close to two and a half years in at this point. Yeah, and I guess on the enjoying the work side of things, do you feel at the moment you've got the right balance with how everything is working for you? Because I do know that in the past it was crazy with the hours, but like I said, you've got two young daughters. Do you feel like because you're kind of quitting the corporate ladder that helps in the aspect of finding that right balance between the exciting world of the startup industry, but also having your personal time? And I know you took a month off recently, right? For your second daughter's birth. Yeah, there's a interesting balance. I'd actually be curious of your, your thoughts on it, Amar, uh, with, you know, would you, and I, I put it in a would you rather question, would you rather be high stress, like have high stress and impact, like feel like you're really making a meaningful difference, but you're stressed out all the time or low stress and chill, you know, kind of a easy work, you know, where restless, like the the feeling of restless, restlessness comes when it's like, I I could be making a bigger impact than I am currently. So there's a kind of like two ends that being in the middle, you, you try, you try and stay in the middle there and so yeah, like now it's not as stressful as it was in the early days. Like there's way more people, smarter, 
there's specialized division of labor, you know, is happening. Like we're a big, you know, solid machine. If I were to be hit by a bus, Hopin would be fine. And so like, yeah, it's, it's less stressful because of that. So now the tension is how do you be content, but not complacent? How do you remain driven and excited about the work and impact you're doing? That's where it's all about what role you're in and the people you're working on. And so with Hopin being a larger company and letting, letting me move to these other you know, product units to help, to help bring them to market, super energizing for me. It's kind of like entrepreneurship, something I feel pretty lucky to be able to do at a company, company I've been at since the beginning. And I guess that's why I quit my day job in a way, because I, w- I did have that rapid growth at the beginning because it was quite a young startup when I started. But then I kind of felt like I hit that ceiling. I think that's a really difficult situation for many people of they're good at what they do, but then it can become almost a coasting. And then could I do more of my time? So it's, yeah, it's difficult because you have companies who only work 20 hours a week and the way they do it is they try to keep projects on the side that keep them entertained. It's that always their juggling act, isn't it? Where, one thing that could be done for some people is that cyclical nature where you have some periods of high stress and like quieter periods. So for you, do you think as the stealth project is going to be launched, will that then go into high stress again during that period where everything's going live and it's becoming public? Or do you think now because of your previous experience, you'll be able to manage that without that same stress that you had previously? Yeah, I would say I, I hope it's stressful. Yeah. Because it's exciting, right? Yeah, yeah, like it's indicative of a of a successful launch, you know, like where it gets really busy and fast paced again. Obviously, we we're at a different place now as a company, and there's way more resources and support. So I don't think it'll be like the early days, but yeah, I'm hoping that it will it will increase in intensity next year when we go to market, which I'm really uh I feel alive, you know, when that when that Mm -hmm. happens. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Dave. Where can people listening hear more about your story and about Hopin too? Or Particues as well, because I'm sure there's many people listening today who kind of Googled that on the side. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you Google questions app, you'll find Particues in both stores. I'm on Twitter. I respond. Dave Schools, three O's in my last name. And then Medium. Yeah, I, I'm trying to write more on Medium, but follow Entrepreneur's Handbook and uh, you'll catch. I'm, I, I'm trying to write periodic pieces on the journey of Hopin. Every every you know six months or, or a year, and so there's two of those on on Medium and Entrepreneur's Handbook. I'm going to write another one here soon. And Amar, thank you for uh, having me on our show no. together for for Entrepreneur's Handbook. No.